0: you can do if you really really want it and sometimes it's not going to be pretty i mean like boys used to throw snowballs at me from the chairlift because i was you know in hand-me-down gear and i was a girl and there weren't too many girls learning to snowboard in the 90s in their dad's track gear and but you know it was the one thing that i wanted so bad i didn't care
1: this is a life in motion audio experience a podcast about travel action sports culture and more What's up and welcome to episode 50 of Life in Motion. That's right, we've made it to 50 episodes and to celebrate that, I've got Constance Beverly on the line from Share Winter Foundation, who's a nonprofit that's all about making an impact through winter sports. Uh, To do that, they have a pretty amazing goal to make winter sports more accessible to a broader and more diverse community, all while sharing winter with 100,000 kids each season by 2028. I'm super excited to learn more about what they're up to and how they're making an impact. Uh, But Constance, first of all, thank you for being on the show today.
0: Well, thank you. And congratulations. 50 episodes. That's awesome. I'm not sure if I've done 50 of anything. (laughs)
1: My- <laughs> I, I, it kind of it kind of came as a surprise when i was looking at it because i you know started off with the episode number i was like wow fine i feel like i feel like 50 is a a number like as a, a stepping stone of some point so a
0: milestone I'm a momentous milestone, milestone if you will <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i'm excited to have you on it to share it with me so, <laughs> so-
0: well, sharing things is kind of on brand for me with the whole share <laughs> vibe. So I'm um, I'm glad to keep with the theme. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's awesome. Um, so so to start things off, you know, before we get into Share Winter Foundation and everything that you are doing, um, let's talk a little bit about yourself. You know, what basically what is your story? You know, where you grew up, where did it all start? You know, hobbies you had, how did you get to kind of where you're at today?
0: Um, well, like everything in life, it kind of sneaks up on you. Um, so let's see. I like to co-opt this line from LeBron James and say, I'm just a kid from Akron. Um, I grew up outside of Akron, Ohio. Oh, okay. Uh, I actually learned to ski when I was about two years old at the illustrious huge mountains of Boston Mills Brandywine, um, total destination in a <laughs> peninsula, <laughs> Ohio. Um, and I skied from age two to about age eight or nine. Uh, My parents were skiers. My dad was a pretty serious skier and my mom was also a pretty serious skier. They loved it. Ski culture was a very big thing in my house. Um, And my little sister learned to ski. My youngest sister didn't, I'm one of three. Um, But skiing, we, we kind of abandoned because my dad passed away when I was nine and, you know, my mom, who's the toughest, most awesome woman in the entire world, um, as much as she would have loved to keep us skiing, you know, when you're a single parent and you're balancing childcare and work and worried about people getting hurt. And my mom was a dental hygienist, so if she broke her arm, no money was going to come in. You know, all of those fears that people talk about with skiing and riding were very real. And so it was something we just had to put on a shelf. Um, it was also really expensive. Um you know, we all know this. We talk about this all the time. Um, but you know, growing up, my mom was always really encouraging all three of her, her girls to go out in the world, basically get outside like nine times out of 10, just be like, all right, what are you guys doing? Just go outside. Like, go, go do something. (laughs) Mom, what are we supposed to do? Something. Go outside. There's (laughs) And, uh, so we were definitely a family that was always encouraged to go, go play in the mud. Um, and we did. Uh, my sisters and I were all, you know, I guess they'll call it tomboys now, but that's a pretty gendered term. But you know, we were never distracted or detracted from pursuing whatever goals we had, um, which has led to a lot of outdoor pursuits for all of the girls in my family. Um, and yeah, you know, if we couldn't ski, we were still playing in the woods, building ramps, trying to snowboard on sleds, etc. And when I was about 15, I decided that I really wanted to get back on the mountain. And I decided I wanted to snowboard. Uh, It seemed, honestly, I grew up in in kind of a richy, rich kid town. Didn't really fit in. And snowboarding seemed like the the place for me where I'd maybe be able to hide out in baggy clothes and find my punk rock friends.
1: (laughs) uh, To to interrupt, I'm trying to think of, was it... uh, it was a disney movie when i was growing it was like i guess late 90s maybe mm-hmm. it was oh my gosh what was it it was it was basically kind of what you described it was uh this ski kid and the ski culture and kind of had a different cultural vibe i should say and then he wanted to be a snowboarder <laughs> i can't remember what it was anyway sorry i was trying to bring up old old, old I don't movie know, But memories. now i
0: need to find it like but it, yeah i
1: can't remember what it was <laughs> but um yeah anyways no it sounds sounds like a similar but anyways go, go ahead
0: <laughs> yeah no and it, it really it i was really attracted to the idea of snowboarding mainly because i was obsessed with surfing but um as a rewind i was growing up in ohio and other you know other than drop your point break johnny utah ohio state reference if we're gonna go with the movie train um it <laughs> really wasn't a, a thing in ohio and we weren't getting to the beach all that often where there were waves so snowboarding seemed like something that maybe I could pull off in my hometown and my, my home mountain. Uh, and people that snowboarded were took it very seriously and I really wanted to do it. But again, you know, all the barriers were still there. So what I devised was there was a coupon in the local paper. It was like $15 and you could get a bunny hill lift ticket and a board and food rental. And the great upselling marketing tactic is like, you didn't get a lesson. So you would have had to pay for the lesson, which was probably three times the cost of the, the $15 ticket. Yeah. But I figured that if my mom could drop me off, which she did, she was like, I got to go to work. If you hate it, you're stuck here. It's cold. I hope you have (laughs) enough money for hot chocolate, like pursue your dreams, but. Don't call me in 15 minutes and tell me you, don't, you
1: You want me to come get you. Yeah, you made, you made your bed. Yeah.
0: You have made your choice. There's a lodge that way. See you in a few. Um, and, you know, I wore my dad's, I think, an old track suit. Like, not even, like, a ski gear. Because I think it was the spring. <laughs> That's why it was cheap. Um, and, like, layers underneath. Uh, and I just kind of rolled up. Got a rental, boots, and then realized that I couldn't afford the lesson, but that if I sat close enough to a lesson, I could hear it. So Ah. I totally eavesdropped on a couple of bunny hill lessons to try and figure out how to get down the hill and then did what all good, you know, teenagers do is, you know, make friends with the lifty and be like, yeah, I know this ticket isn't really good on this. This was pre RFID. So this would not work anymore with technology. Just be like, come on, come on, like this. This ticket, like, yeah, it looks like the other ticket. It's totally fine. You'll let me on the lift, right? And, um, you know, kind of- I love it. <laughs> my way around the mountain. And then um, from there, fell in love with it, did it very, very little until I moved to New York City. And I was in law school and realized that, you know, I needed friends that weren't lawyers. Like, no disrespect to the lawyers out there and mad love to the lawyers that ski and snowboard. But I was just like, Oh my God, I can't like, if this is who I'm going to hang out with the rest of my life, what am I going (laughs) to do? I actually started volunteering with uh, a program in New York city that uh, took kids from, from New York and all the boroughs, uh, snowboarding, skateboarding and surfing. And that's kind of how I started getting into the nonprofit action sports activism, if you will. Yeah. And that totally altered the course of my life. So that's the Cliff Notes version. And there's so much we can unpack from all of that. Awesome. Um, I feel like I'm in therapy now. I should lay on my couch.
1: Um, but, <laughs> get get comfortable. Okay. Get back, get comfortable. Um, yeah,
0: exactly. Kicking back, you know, chilling, drinking my coffee, talking about my life.
1: <laughs> um. So so it's kind of – so one, I think the last thing I expect you to say is that you started skiing at two. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is – <laughs> I assumed it was going to be winter sports kind of a an early um an early influence for you but two, I mean like I I have a 2 year old at home I'm trying to imagine him getting on skis and like what that chaos would bring so that's pretty awesome that uh your your family kind of got you into that at an early age um and it's it's kind of cool hearing the kind of more or less the adaptation that you had with the different challenges I'll call them um through that because, you know, you you might not have been able to go to the slopes anymore, but you you're still able to find fun out there with your siblings outdoors and even making your own makeshift stuff um, with snowboarding and stuff. So that's that's really cool that kind of stuck with you. Was it just kind of that, I guess, just that freedom of just exploring that you just kind of kept going back to that, like initially before you got back into snowboarding?
0: Yeah, and honestly, a lot of it was just being... Just in love with being outside, and you know, a lot of people think about well, if you're a nature kid, you grew up in Colorado or Utah. But you know, I grew up outside of a national park in Ohio. Um, you know, we were all cross country runners because, well, one, my dad was a cross country champion growing mm-hmm. up, so we all just ran because we thought we were supposed to, and only really one of us was good at it, and that <laughs> was not me. <laughs> and uh, we used to run this like thirty mile. Ohio Erie Canal and just play in the woods and do all of that stuff. It was just endless source of entertainment, you know? Um, And then I think the interesting thing is once you fall in love with being outside, you just start thinking about other environments you'd like to experience. And you're kind of chasing this, I call it like a beauty high, this like awe-inspiring thing. And it could be mountains, it could be ocean, be climbing, you know, running, All of these different things. But for me, there was just something particular about the snow and the mountain. And, and I mean, in all honesty, part of it was, I was always kind of a chubby, not super athletic kid. I like being able to layer up in clothes and, uh, you know, not have to feel that. I was on display all the time. I mean, I ran cross country in like short shorts and it was like a horrible high school experience, but you know, you throw me in a mountain with eight layers of clothes and I I felt protected. (laughs) Like I felt, felt, you know, most of the time people thought I looked like a boy, you know, you you realize that you could blend, you can hide, you can totally change your identity with skiing and riding. And um, overall that's really what it was, is snowboarding for me was the first place Where I got to be the version of the person I wanted to be, not what anyone expected me to be. You know, I was a nerd, I was a good student, I studied a lot, I worked really hard, I was always very tense. But on the mountain, no one knew any of that. And I could, you know, bundle up in some gear and go flying down the mountain and literally be whoever the heck I wanted to be. And that just unlocked so much for me. And even when I was practicing law, you know, I worked on Wall Street and I had a snowboard in my office, you know, partners, (laughs) these like big partners working on the Lehman Brothers case would walk by and they'd be like, you going to Vermont this weekend? Okay, good for you, kid. (laughs) But it just, it gave me a place and a sense of self and a sense of happiness and a whole different community to bond with Um, people who had different experiences. I could meet people on the chairlift and like, they didn't know where I grew up or, you know, what I did for a living, they were just talking to me because we happened to be on a lift and we love the same thing. And I saw so much power in that. And it gave me so much freedom and so much joy and such like an alternate sense of self that I became kind of obsessed with the idea of everyone having that. And when I started working with other organizations and seeing You know, you've got a kid in New York City that's from the Bronx or from like where I was living in Flatbush and what people thought that kid should look like, talk like, dress like, what society told them, where they belonged, what sports were assigned to them, you know, what identities they were supposed to live up to. And just challenging that concept became one of the most powerful things I had ever seen. And slowly that whole concept became my life. And that's kind of how I came to Share Winter. But it all just started with like a love of being outdoors and this endless pursuit of finding other ways to exist in the world, in environments. And for me, snowboarding was just the key to that. It just showed me all that possibility and really changed my perspective on who I wanted to be and how I wanted to live my life.
1: That's awesome. I can uh, I, I can sort of relate to that. I, I grew up riding BMX bikes, um, so kind of the same solo sport in a sense, but you still have this different community around you of other riders and stuff. And you know, you have the the stereotypes that go along with uh you know with a bike or a board or whatnot. <laughs> um and you're com- you know completely different than what that stereotype is. So I so I know I totally understand that. And it's cool that you that it impacts it's cool to hear that it impacted you in that way as well. Um, so I, I'm I'm still a little confu- I'm, I am i am a little confused on the parallel. And we don't have to get into it, but the parallel between going talking about this growing up outdoors, snowboarding stuff, and then ending up on a lawyer on Wall Street.
0: <laughs> you got to pay your bills, my friend. You got to pay your bills. <laughs> um, yeah, that that didn't really make sense either. I could I could actually explain that um, because it's somewhat critical to the story. Is I actually went to law school to become an environmental lawyer.
1: Okay. Okay. See, there we go.
0: There we go. Um, and this is the funny thing that you don't realize as a child or as a person in the world that adults don't tell you is like all of, all of the things that impact who you can be and all of those beautiful little hiccups in the road when everyone likes to tell their success story. It's like, well, I got to hear it, and This is why, well, you know, I went to law school to be an environmental lawyer and, you know, sometimes and I don't want to get a little woo woo with you, but like sometimes the universe just steps in and was like, are you sure about that? Are you sure? So, you know, I go to law school, go to law school on Long Island because they gave me a full scholarship. Cause you know, like I said, didn't grow up with a ton of money, but a lot of hustle. And I just seized opportunities. I I had actually decided against law school, and then I got a full ride. My mom's like, You're gonna turn down free law school? And she was she was right. She <laughs> so I went. she's always right. Ugh, mom, why you gotta be right all the time? Right? <laughs> um, you know. And I went there because they had an environmental law program. Literally, the head of the environmental law program, who was the only one who taught environmental law classes, died like three weeks before I was supposed to start there. I was like, well, this is not a good sign. Really? Um, So I didn't even take my first environmental law class until my third year of law school, which is your last year's second semester, when they finally got an adjunct who actually only rolled in there because they had been displaced from Tulane due to Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> right. So it was one of those things where in the process of being in law school, um, I looked into public interest jobs and I, was, I clerked at the Second Circuit and I did well in law school. So I was offered all of these really big law firm jobs. And I was like, well, you know, how much money could that be? I had no idea, like I grew up in what I thought was a rich town, and then I lived in Manhattan, and I realized that like <laughs> I had no concept of wealth <laughs> like at all, and I was like, all right, wow, there's money to be made. Uh, I also had student debts to pay off, there was a financial crisis, you know, I got offered this job, and I took it because one is also a place people told me I didn't belong, so people that I knew in my life you know knew me as this public interest person. In fact, my first law firm interview, the recruiter actually called my law school and said, you should probably sit this girl down. Her resume screams activist. No one's going to hire her, but she's super smart. You know, everything's there, except for the fact that we can all tell that like this isn't where she wants to be. But we also know she'd work really hard. And if she interviewed differently, she could probably get a job. And so the recruitment office sits me down and there's like constants. You know, you're doing really well at law school. These are really prestigious jobs. They're going to unlock a lot of doors. And we get it? You probably don't really belong. You know, yeah, you didn't really come from one of these rich families. Like you don't dress like them. Like it's going to be hard for you. But I mean, really they wanted me to take it because they needed to up their law school stats of how many people they placed at these fancy But I also looked at it that I had you know, been living off ramen and working three jobs. And the idea of maybe financially being able to do something with my life and help my family was, you know, it was hard to say no. And also no one ever expected me to reach that, right? Like I didn't come from a fancy family. I didn't have connections. I wasn't a New Yorker. And part of me did it just despite the stereotype (laughs) of people thinking and telling me where I belonged. Right. Same thing. I got into snowboarding I was like, you know what? I am just as smart as any of these people that went to Harvard. I've worked really, really hard. I can do this. There's so much to learn. Someone with my background shouldn't be there, but someone's offering me a seat at the table and I need to go show them what this, what this kid from Akron is made of.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> so I did
0: it. Um, and honestly, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be able to do what I do with ShareWinner. You know, we work with donors for major financial firms and I pitch venture capitalists and speak to people at hedge funds and that street cred of having been on Wall Street, that legitimate financial Wall Street street cred actually is something that I needed for people to take me seriously. And that's sad on a bunch of levels, but it also shows that whatever you decide to do with your life, if you have a goal in mind there are so many different ways to get there. And there's so many different ways that you can achieve it and utilize skills and networks and opportunities and quite frankly, privilege to make change. And there is no one way. And there's a lot of me that for the longest time was like, I never should have gone to law school. And I can't believe I spent seven years working in big law firms. And and I was really bitter about it for a really long time, but I've finally reached maturity as I'm getting, as speaking of numbers creeping up on you, um, that I could not be doing what I'm doing. I couldn't have the impact that I have. I can't live, I couldn't have lived the life that I want, had the opportunities I had if I hadn't done that. And, um, yeah, I'm super grateful for it. I mean, again, my mom talked me into it and she's always right.
1: Well, it, it sounds it sounds like the, the, the universe is working on your side again, even though it was a little, maybe long-term than you thought. But to your point, um, I mean, that totally makes sense with um, ha- having that, that that credibility, even if it's right or wrong, given some of the things that you pointed out, of course, um, still gives you the opportunity to make a difference in these, and make an impact with, with Share Winter and everything else. Um, and you're obviously a, a real... Go getter from the beginning, so it's cool that that you were able to do that. Um, so so I guess that's probably a good place to kind of transition into share winter. Um, you know it sounds like you know you 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 found a couple of nonprofits um, while in New York um, and, and kind of got the taste of that and kind of sounds like nonprofits that really meshed well with kind of um, who you were with the snowboarding and all that kind of stuff as well and your passions. Um so so one I guess how did you fi- how did you how did you get to share winter uh foundation um and then also what is it
0: hmm. Well I'll start with what it is uh so the Share Winter Foundation is our mission is to improve the lives health and fitness of youth through winter sports and by winter sports currently we are defining that as uh, skiing and riding so nordic and alpine skiing and snowboarding Uh, We chose those sports because, one, many youth have been traditionally denied access to those sports because they are quite expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, They have quite a few barriers. Um, You know, people have asked us about hockey and skating. You know, because a lot of this is mountain-specific or snow-specific or cold-weather snow-making ability-specific, we just saw these as sports that had so many hurdles that – focused energy on removing barriers in that space was a good idea. Um, we also just, the founders love these sports. <laughs> um, we I actually took this foundation over from its original founders. Um, okay. Sure, so Winter actually started as an initiative of the United States Ski and Snowboard Team, which recognized over 10 years ago that skiing and riding participation was in decline and that it was pretty homogenous, honestly. And that if eventually we were gonna find the best athletes and if we were gonna have a really strong team that there needed to be more outreach and more opportunity for youth to get into and fall in love with the sport. Well, what happened is the ski team has to focus on elite skiing. Um, That's a very skiing and riding. It's a very expensive, very time consuming endeavor. So what happened is this initiative split off into something called the National Winter Sports Education Foundation. Which was what we were called until I took over and said, I can't even say that three times fast so we're going to have to rebrand. Um, also, I don't like to admit it, but you know, I just have that kind of millenni- millennial like brand attachment where it's like, guys, this has to be cooler. I'm
1: sorry.
0: <laughs> I just can't. I can't with the acronyms. Like, no, we can't do that. Um, which was kind of the first thing I asked when I took the job. I was like, so the name, we can change it, right? Which is lot like staring at someone's baby and being like do you really want to name her apple like it's a weird it's a weird thing I can Um, see how that'd
1: be an interesting conversation yeah it's an interesting
0: conversation but um my hallmark is just really engaging in difficult conversations and trying to get people to laugh and being like no but really we're changing this right um (laughs) that's just what I do uh so yeah so they found me actually, which is beautiful. We can just call it the universe yet again. Um, But what had actually happened is I quit practicing law in 2013. I just had it. Um, I was so miserable. I mean, I honestly was sitting at my desk and I was like, having existential crises, crises, which again, a very privileged thing to have. I acknowledge that, but I was just sitting there and I was like, wow, I can't do this. I'm working myself to death. I had landed landed myself in the hospital twice, um, super unhealthy wasn't getting outside, just like everything that happens when you, when you're not doing something that's good for your existence. Um, And I paid off my student loans, which was a hallmark. And that was that moment where I was like, so I paid off this really fancy piece of paper that now (laughs) sit on a wall with that guilt-free, but this isn't what I want to do anymore. So I worked with some other organizations and I worked at a startup and I landed living in a friend's basement in Park City. frankly um and while i was there and i was doing some work with the us ski team um and i was also working for kelly clark who uh is a phenomenal hero of mine olympian gold medalist snowboarder half pipe extraordinaire um (laughs)
1: all of the above
0: all of (laughs) the above just (laughs) overall goddess let's just throw that word out there um and honestly nwscf wanted to work with her and i happened to be in park city where the executive director at the time uh was located and we had breakfast and he's like i'd really like kelly to do this thing and i just kind of told him my life story and he was like wait a second (laughs) what are you doing right now um (laughs) not not really like that much more formal and um professional, but that's, that's how the story goes in my head. Um, and I joined the board of NWSEF, and then I actually moved back to New York to work for Stoked Mentoring, who,
1: yeah.
0: which was the organization that I started volunteering with in law school. So I went there to head up their partnerships and development and, you know, do some fundraising and help grow that organization. And I was there for about 18 months, and I joined the board of NWSEF. And after the first board meeting, Um, the executive director and the CEO at the time kind of reached out and said, you know, we've had an executive search for a while because, you know, we're, we're moving on. We're going to do other things. We need someone to grow and scale this organization. We looked at your resume, which you submitted to be on the board and you have a really unique background. Like, would you be interested in applying for this job? To which I said, did you just ask me if I want to apply to my dream job? Uh, the, answer, <laughs> the answer is a resounding yes. What do you need from me? Like what DNA sample well, yeah. background check? Like, what do you want? Take, take it all. I'm in. So that's, that's kind of how I came to, came to be. Um, and really what it was is the mix of business experience. You know, I had worked at a startup for three years. Um, I had worked with a lot of brands in the outdoor industry. I had had relationships with the ski team. I had worked with professional athletes, multiple nonprofits, some of which we now fund. Um, and I had a, a background in community organizing, uh, not for profit law. Cause I had done that on the side pro bono. Um, I knew about governance. I'd sat on multiple boards and they just kind of looked at the resume and they're like, We didn't create this job for you, but it sure looks like it. (laughs) It's pretty Um, much
1: checks off every box.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to give someone some sort of like, like magically, like, oh, I applied for a thousand jobs. And I I literally just kept taking opportunities that made sense to me and blended being able to pay my bills and do things that I love. Sometimes working so much that I actually landed in the hospital, which I do not advise at all. physical and mental health, prioritize that everyone, no matter what you're chasing. Um, but yeah, that's, it, it all just converged right here. And now, I mean, the hard thing is I just don't know what else I would do with my life but this because it just is every aspect of my life. So, um, you know, it's a good thing that I'm here because at this point, this really weird resume that I have, I'm not so sure it lands anywhere else um, in such a productive way. So I really, really hope to just retire having done this
1: (laughs) that's awesome it it sounds like uh fate is on your side more often than not
0: fate is disguised like a lot of hard work and taking a lot of really risky (laughs) opportunities so
1: so so you kind of walk into this position basically um so, so you walk in there and kind of take over pretty soon uh or pretty early on um, yeah. Which, which I guess I, I didn't realize at first, which is awesome. So, you know, at that point, um, y- you know, was it was it sort of heading in the direction that it was now, or, or that it is now at that point? Or did you kind of go in and start implementing these new different programs? Um, I guess programs would be the, the right word. There's... Yeah. Um, you know, the, the grant making and support, um, the participation pipeline, the best practices, those are just pulled off of your off yep. the website. But are those kind of things that you started to implement as it kind of grew and you started kind of went from there?
0: Yeah. Uh when I came in, they had undertaken a really huge project um that was split off into a separate nonprofit. And they, they had been doing a lot of testing. I would say I came in. In the research and development phase, okay, um, they had given a couple of grants out, predominantly to U.S. ski and snowboard club-based programs, um, and then you know a couple of other programs they were piloting, they were they were developing. I came in, we spun off the larger project, which was the purchase of a mountain in New Jersey, into its own nonprofit. Um, we restructured our whole giving strategy, and totally reallocated the budget, and then um, started building a new brand and a new approach. So I was incredibly lucky because a lot of the trial and error had happened, and they had tested a few things, you know, programs in schools, U.S. ski and snowboard clubs, and identified a lot of what was needed. And from there, I sort of came in and operationalized and branded it, and then figured out how to take so many of the pieces, so many of the connections and start to streamline it. And that's been a pretty huge undertaking. Um, You know, the shift overall is we were, when I started, it was 2017, I'm coming up on my four year anniversary on March 1st. So we were, I came in mid grant season, we were serving about 12,000 kids with three programs. We now serve, well, as of 2020, a lot of things right now in the world that is pandemic land, um, a lot of our programs are at reduced capacity or on pause uh, for health and safety reasons, but it's okay. We're still working with all of them. But 2020, we had 27 partners. We were in some way funding 45,000 kids. We had collected data across the board from all partners, literally putting them all on the same page, engaged with the industry trade associations, pitched individual mountains. Um, And we were giving away, raising and giving away a million dollars a year. That's the thing people don't necessarily realize is when they hear foundation, they think that I just sit on a pile of money and hand it out. We don't. We have to re-raise our money pretty much every year. We do have long-term donors who've committed to three to five years, but we're not just an endowment that doles off a piece of it. We're actually an actively fundraising organization that is constantly looking for money and sponsorship. And that's something that's highly unusual. It's also not super common in this area. To the best of my knowledge, we're the only large scale foundation that funds skiing and riding purely for the sake of kids learning to ski or ride. Um, It's not something that they have to prove and, and, and write an elaborate thing and say, but this is STEM education and that's why you should fund it or they're developing. We know that skiing and riding changes lives. And as long as the kids are having a safe and positive experience and actually learning to ski or ride. Um, and then another hallmark is we work with our organizations. We want them to also start building pathways so kids can continue to ski and ride. Um, We don't do one-offs. We don't do exposure programs. We don't do marketing days. We don't do parties where it's like, we let kids ski for an hour. No. Kids need to be able to go at least four times. They're actually getting instruction. They're being provided with proper gear, etc. You know, that they can have a positive and sustainable experience. So that's a pretty heavy lift. Um, We're super involved. So we raise a bunch of money, we give it out, but then we work with all of those programs, figuring out how to empower them to do the work that they're already doing, connect them to national partners, make this a national conversation, and then, you know, constantly look for new programs that we can either help build or improve upon. So it's a 365 day year no real season ongoing commitment to creating new pathways into the sports into the industry at large
1: yeah that and that's that's um first of all that that growth is in, impressive because like once again checking out the website you know the year over year since 2016 or whatnot it's gotten larger and larger and really when you put in pers- to perspective what you said you know it's not like a uh, an endowment or whatnot, you know, you're constantly fundraising, but also all the different moving parts. I mean, you, from partners to the kids themselves to, um, the different ski locations and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's, that's a lot going on.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's busy. It's super busy. Um, and we're super small. I mean, we just hired our third employee three weeks ago. Really? Okay. Um, yeah. And we our our programs person didn't come on to do things 40 hours a week until March of last year. So um, we are small but mighty. <laughs> we are growing. We are going to be hiring some more. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. And it's, it's, I think it's actually more than we even expected. We thought some, we thought some things were already, were going to be super easy. And there would be some easy buy-in. Like, hi, we're raising all this money and we're going to make all this happen. We just need X, Y, and Z. But even getting into the door to talk about that is a multi-step process and there's a lot of there's a lot of unlearning that the ski and ride the outdoor industry needs to do about perceptions biases the way things need to be done um and that has been a really heavy lift Um, i'm seeing some positive change but i think that's the thing that was the most shocking to me is how much convincing we had to do to tell people that we wanted to create their next wave of consumers. And, um, that took way more time than ever imagined. I, I went in a little too rosy on
1: that one. That that makes, and I'm guessing that's with, with brands and different, um, locations and, and uh, kind of everybody kind of might have some of those, those challenges, I guess, that that you're facing with, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think that is changing and a lot of that has to do with, you know, we support 27 organizations that have been doing the work and and getting kids outside um, without adequate support for the most part, we can't even provide them the adequate support when we really think about the costs and, and what it would take to really revolutionize this. Like this is a heavy lift but it's necessary. It's game changing. Um, It'll impact the industry in such a positive way. And it's going to improve the lives of so many kids and so many people and so many families. Um, So we see it as a no brainer, but we have to, we have to prove our model like everybody else does. So we're still out there making it happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, so back to the, to the kids and the youth. So, you know, one of the things obviously the, the, is, is helping, um, to, to reach a broader and more diverse community. Um, as I mentioned before, um, and there's some obvious challenges with that. How do you, I guess, how are you doing that? And then also, how are you, how are you reaching these kids? Because, you know, depending on what communities you're looking at to try to get them involved, um, you know, they might have not even thought about skiing or snowboarding or anything like that before. So how how do you kind of make that introduction or find, I guess, the kids that you're kind of helping support in the end?
0: Yeah, it's always so interesting because this is particularly recently, people are like, oh, diversity, it's so hard. And honestly, that's one of the things we have to deconstruct. Where we start first is we didn't really market ourselves. We, you know, we did some SEO and, and other business type things so people could find you on the web. But at first we wanted communities to come to us. You know, we could have called up every organization we had heard of. And we tried that at first, in all honesty. Um, I emailed even some of the programs that we fund now and said, hey, you know, we're this fund. We're looking at doing some grant making. We'd like to talk. And I'll be honest with you, some of their executive directors didn't even write me back. If they're listening now, I still kind of hold that against you guys. Um, <laughs> but you can't just like, but what I realized is one, there's almost always strings attached and we do have strings. Ours are data requirements and, and background checks and professionalism and all this other stuff to ensure that the kids are safe and that, you know, we're not easy to get money from. We're actually quite hard to get money from. Um, but we realized that first we wanted to see what people needed. I could have run around and just been like, "Hey, you should take kids skiing. Here's what's up." Um, and so we we waited a little bit. We saw who came to us, and a lot of people came to us. Um, not always a lot from diverse areas, which we noticed at first. Um, and part of that is exactly what you've identified: is that you know, if you're living in an area where you have a lot of pressing needs you may not pick skiing or riding first or there's always been this common misconception and I faced this when I was working at Stoked when I was fundraising for you know jumps and you know working with people at Chill is that when you go to talk to people about hey we want to have a bus that can get kids that are further away from the mountain to the mountain a lot of the pushback is always just like well, that's a luxury, that's stupid. Like, why would we pay that? We'll just give them a basketball or a soccer ball. Like the number of times I've heard that is crazy. And I have an entire TED talk in my head that I'm planning for just addressing that and, and unpacking that and what that actually means. Um, so a lot of people, you know, wouldn't even think to start a ski program because before us, they probably couldn't have gotten the funding for it because that is what a lot of even sports-based youth development Grants would say to me, like, that's too expensive. You can put them in another sport for cheaper. Pick something else. And that narrative, even from philanthropists, has been fed to communities of color, urban communities, rural communities, rich, poor, every ethnicity is, we want to help you, but that sounds like a pretty expensive way to help you. So I think even when we were reaching out to communities, they looked at us and they were like, yeah, right you're going to do this for a year and then you're going to go away. Why would I get kids, you know, hooked on skiing? And then when we can't make up that extra difference and when no one else will fund us, because even the most prevalent philanthropists in this space say no to skiing and snowboarding, what are we going to do? So we had to develop that trust. We went out and we raised money and said, look, we're going to fund for three to five years. We're going to help you build this. And that trust relationship and then pooling resources is really what happened because, You know, it's a big deal to get parents, particularly non-ski families in areas that are not traditionally ski areas, to invest their time, their kids' time, and maybe a little bit of their own money to get, you know, the the little bits and pieces of things that aren't covered by our grants or by our community partners. Why would you do all that if you think that, A, it's just going to go away? And B, the other heavy lift is when we're taking kids from with from economic or racial or ethnic diversity, sometimes they get to the mountain and they would be made to feel like they didn't belong so much that like they didn't even wanna go even if we'd pay for it, right? So the way we solve that is by creating community and working with community partners instead of coming in kind of like imperialist and saying, oh, hey, here's here's our ski program and our brand. We try to work with people With set parameters and one of the reasons we set the parameters is so that every kid gets the same opportunity. In my past, I had encountered, encountered programs that, you know, they'd, they'd go into the city, they'd take kids skiing or riding, but their experience wasn't the same if they were taking rich white kids skiing or riding. Uh. So if that, if that experience, if you're not going to introduce someone to the sport the same way you would introduce your own kid, don't do it. And we didn't want to work with organizations or programs that, you know, had someone who wanted to do it for like a day because it was more of a marketing thing. And then we also realized that even in that was hard because some people were doing that and the program didn't have everything they needed, but they just wanted to get the kids out there. So it's like, we're constantly learning too. It's like, oh, you would do it this way, but no one's giving you the resources. Well, wow, we need to come up with more resources for you before we take you on. We didn't realize that our own biases, our own knowledge and learning of of how philanthropy works is wrong. We need to fix that. So it's constantly evolving, but it's really community-based. I think a lot of people run into places and they try to slap a corporate solution on a community problem or they decide what a community needs. We try to work in the reverse. We ask them what they need. We figure out you know, if we can provide it in a way that's fair and allows them to grow. And if not, sometimes we turn programs down because we're not ready to support them in the way that they would need to thrive. Sometimes it's not even on them. It's on our ability to get them what they need in any given year, mainly based on, you know, our partnerships or space on the mountain, et cetera. So a lot of it is trust and just being really honest and transparent and making sure that you're creating something viable and wonderful, not just writing a check. Um, But people want to go skiing. I mean, we call, sometimes we'll just call a YMCA and we're like, we've figured it all out. We have a partner mountain, all we need is buses and if kids are available on Tuesdays and Thursdays and we'll pay for the whole thing <laughs> and you'll get 40, 50 kids in 24 hours from, you know, a city that none of their families skied, they never skied. But if you make it that easy, kids love to try stuff. Yeah. And they all came back this year. So, you know, a lot of it is just doing the work, making the calls and making it easy too. It's like, it's daunting if you're not, from a ski background to try and navigate how you're going to set that up. And we're working towards creating more materials so that people can come to our website and see some tips and practices and they can get stuff started and then come to us for money. But, you know, we're constantly evolving as well. We learn something new every day. We're wrong. Sometimes we learn from that. We just keep moving forward and doing the best that we can and learning so much for the community about how we can be better and what is actually needed. And then we just really try to go get it. Um, but yeah, that's long winded way of saying that, but <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> no, that,
1: that makes sense. And it's kind of interesting. Um, the, 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 the barriers that you have to have from the people that are used to giving to, you know, the, that, that mindset that whether they mean to have it or not, you know, like, well, it's cheaper. Just give them a basketball like that kind of analogy kind of struck me for some reason. Um, and that, and that makes sense. And even, you know, giving, if, if you're doing it for free for somebody, you, it should be, it should be the same way for both sides of the party, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's interesting, and cool to hear that you're figuring out how to break down those barriers within that world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there any, are there any favorite stories or anything from, from your time there? And I, I mean, I know we, we've talked a lot about kind of some of the impact you're having and stuff like that but is there anything that like really stands out um that's just kind of that that one moment or that one story that you always tell
0: um there's never really one um because there are so many and I think one that's really standing out for me right now is that you know we work with one organization in the Poughkeepsie, Newburgh area, and it's a snowboarding program. I am partial to snowboarding. Um, sorry. <laughs>
1: there.
0: Um, it, just because it has my heart. Snowboarding gave me so much that there's I, – I see a snowboard, and it's just, like, that instant. It's kind of like when people look at puppies or kittens. Like, every time I see any snowboard, no matter what it is – like people throwing snowboards away in the street in Brooklyn. And I'd look at it, with this is like lovingly, like I want to hold you, you've given me so much. Come like, home with
1: me. Exactly.
0: Like I'll, I'll make you a bench. I just <laughs> mean so much to me. So I have that, I have like this weird love with an inanimate object. So <laughs> I uh, I knew the founder, Danny Harrison of the Shred Foundation from when I was a lawyer and we shared a house at Stowe when he worked for the Chill Foundation and he actually also worked at Stoked and he was just such a good friend. And he always had this vision of taking some of the best things he had learned, but making it so different and so authentic for kids and not in New York City, right? Um, I lived in New York for 15 years, Brooklyn has my heart. Um, And, but I also noticed that in working in philanthropy, working in even like legal services is that everyone focuses on these big cities and The marketing of like a kid from the Bronx is always like such a, oh, that's the sexy thing to tell. And that's the story, which is also a problematic narrative for kids who are just awesome and thriving in those spaces. But that is a topic for another day. But, you know, he went to Newburgh and Poughkeepsie where like no one was running any of these programs. Like there were so many programs, say in New York City, but like nothing outside of New York City. And we took them on as a grantee my first year, like late, honestly, you know, we probably shouldn't have, we barely had the capacity. I basically gave him the budget that they had given me to have an office. I was like, we're not gonna have an office here, you just take it. (laughs) And, um, which has been problematic. I keep using a lot of our budget to bring on programs and everybody's like, wait, why don't you? And I was like, yeah, we don't have storage space. I gave that to a school in Vermont. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've, I've done a lot of that, but from where they started, And just watching him grow within that community and adapt the program to actually serve the needs of the kids. And those kids actually, you know, there's 40 to 50 kids in shred and they went through the junior instructor program. So you've got mostly kids of color at Wyndham mountain outside of New York becoming instructors. They just released a little video on their Instagram about the shred space. They want to build this or the shred lab, you know, they're building this lab where kids can come and learn, things like graphic design and edit videos from their snowboarding. I've ridden with those kids and they can really ride and they have so much fun and so much energy. And it's just everything when people say that like, skiing is dead or snowboarding is dead or the industry is boring. I just laugh hysterically because you you, you took all of these kids from this program and that's just one of 27 of our programs. And if you spend a day with them, you know, I watch when I lived in Park City, I'd watch parents drag their kids out of like Land Rovers, screaming and crying to their ski lessons that didn't want to go. And then I go, and kids are just like so amped to get on the mountain, so ready, asking how they could like become pros, asking how they could get a job in the industry. And that shift, where it's just like if you just give kids opportunity that want it, they will crush it. They will find a way. They will have the most fun. I have such fun riding with kids at programs. I've ridden with kids at Park City, Big Sky, Tahoe, you know, and Bel Air Mountain in New York. But every time I'm with the kids at programs that we're working with, those kids love it. They love it as much as I loved it. They see endless opportunity. They talk about the people they ski and ride with as their best friends. They... Want to contribute to the culture, to the growth, and so anytime anyone says to me, "Oh, diversity and skiing is hard," or "We just don't know where we're going to hire these people," I just wish I could just put them, I could just transport them to programs like Shred and be like, "All you need to do is support these kids who are everything that you've ever asked for. Stop ignoring them."
1: Yeah, that no, that 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 makes sense, and that that's it's, it's cool that you're able to inspire so many people that way too. And, and with ways like giving up your office space and mm-hmm. that too.
0: <laughs> yeah. We were remote before remote was cool. And honestly, giving up that <laughs> office space was the smartest thing ever. Cause I'd be it's... losing so much money on it. Right
1: <laughs> <now>. <laughs> but that, no, that's cool. That makes sense. Um, t- total, total sense as well to focus on what's, what's around you and the, and the kids as well. With, with that, I know that you sort of spoke a little bit about it, kind of with the favorite story or a story about it, but is there any um, specific advice or anything that you would give to a kid that might be maybe timid about getting into, you know, whether it's a program that's funded through you all or not, or just getting out there? Um, you know, maybe, maybe they, they have these different barriers in their head, you know, that, that we've talked about. Is there, is there some advice that you can, that you would offer them to kind of help tear down those barriers and kind of think of it in a new perspective?
0: I think, you know, it's interesting because when I speak to people, um, a lot of the kids that, you know, we really want to focus on giving opportunity to, which are kids traditionally denied access, which are generally kids of color, kids with lower, um, come from coming from lower income brackets. um, Is that, they overcome barriers every day. Like they walk through the world, they are keenly aware of of what they're up against. And I think sometimes we forget that actually kids are more resilient than we are because they haven't learned a lot of the crap that we have ingested as adults. And I think that the best advice I'd have is that there is a way it might not be easy and it might not be the way everybody else does it, but there's a way. And not to belittle that for some people that way is going to be much harder fought, but there are also people that want to help you, you know, and we live in the world of the internet. Now, you know, I had to find stoked mentoring on my space, which tells my age, <laughs> but you know, if. If you go to our website, you know, those are 30 programs, like you can send them an email, like maybe your school can get involved. Um, Maybe there's a coupon in the paper. Um, Maybe there's a kid at school that you know skis or rides and maybe you asking them about that is how you make a friend. I mean, that's actually how I made my first snowboard friend. Um, I think it's just deciding it's something you really, really want. And you're already living your life, getting things done every single day. This is just another thing that you can do if you really, really want it. And sometimes it's not going to be pretty. I mean, like boys used to throw snowballs at me from the chairlift because I was, you know, in hand-me-down gear and I was a girl and there weren't too many girls learning to snowboard in the nineties in their dad's track gear. And, but you know, it was the one thing that I wanted so bad. I didn't care. (laughs) Yeah. And not that, you know, not to belittle anyone who's afraid to do this, but you know what, you're going to be afraid of things every day. And the good thing about this is when you get into it, it does teach you how to overcome those fears because it teaches you that there's so much joy on the other side of that. And like you constantly get better and you constantly progress and there's a whole new group of people to meet. You're already facing your fears every day. Why not? Why not go for another one? (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's, you know, that's, that's great. No, that's, that's awesome. Awesome advice. And, and just kind of go for it. So, so to that extent, where, where can people find you all online um, website, social, all that good stuff, yeah. um, you know, to see, see what you're up to, see what different programs they can get involved with and, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can find us at either sharewinter.org or sharewinterfoundation.org. We're at sharewinterfoundation on Facebook and Instagram and also Twitter, though we don't really tweet yet. It's not, hasn't really been our thing. Um, we're working on our social presence. We're growing, small, but mighty. Um, but yeah, if you, if you Google share winter, you'll find us. Um, if you Google ski or snowboarding grants, um, we wanna hear from you. You can volunteer through our website. We'll match you with a program if there's one in your area. Anyone can be an ambassador for us, uh, telling the world about what we do. There's lots of opportunities, opportunity to apply for grants. We're gonna have seminars. So get on our mailing list, our email list. We, we actually try not to send mail, We're trying to keep trying to keep the trees for skiing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we try to do everything digitally to lessen our footprint. Um, so yeah, find us online and join the family and you'll learn everything through our social media channels. We, we put a lot out there. So come find us, join the family.
1: Awesome. Well, everyone uh, definitely go check them out. Um, As you, as you heard from her story and whatnot, um, they're doing some awesome things, making some awesome waves. Um, And uh, yeah, definitely check out some of their programs. But I want to thank you again for being on the podcast today to not only share your own personal story, but also kind of sharing how that transitioned um, into, into share and your part there and and what you're doing and ultimately where, where you're taking it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you've made it this far and like what you've heard, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and let your friends know about life in motion. Until next time.